welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the 11th Hour Trailer, NPR, The Onion Radio News, Democracy Now!, and This Brave Nation. There's a fundamental illusion in the world that somehow people are separate from nature. What we saw with Katrina is just prologue. There isn't one living system that is stable or is improving. Our food is becoming poison. ocean crisis that is occurring Worse right is now. yet to come. So human beings are the source of the problem. We can be the foundation of the solution. We face a convergence of crises. Industrial civilization has caused irreparable damage and our impact is only accelerating. The tragedy is the potential extinction of humankind. By the middle of the century, there may be 150 million environmental refugees. Not only is it the 11th hour, it's 11.59. The problem is not a problem of global warming. The problem is not a problem of waste. The problem is the way that we are thinking. What we've lost is the beauty of the world, and we make up for it with attempting to conquer the world. So that if we choose to eradicate ourselves from this earth, the earth goes nowhere. The earth has all the time in the world, and we don't. I see a world in the future in which we understand that all life is related to us, and we treat that life with great humility and respect. This is all hands on deck time, so that in the future people look back at this time, that this was our finest hour. What a great time to be alive, because this generation gets to completely change this world. Our response depends on the conscious evolution of our species, and this response could very well save this unique blue planet for future generations. American families make choices about where they live and how much they drive. And those decisions, multiplied millions of times, can have a big impact on global warming. NPR's Elizabeth Shogren went to one of the nation's most congested cities, that's Atlanta. In the first of our two stories, she introduces us to a family that moved from the city to the suburbs. This is Michelle Carvalho's dream house. It's 3,000 square feet. It has five bedrooms, a two-car garage, and a big yard. I guess I had this vision of once I had kids, we would move out further because of the schools and the area. So I, I like it. I mean, there are trade-offs. Like the fact that it's only 7.15, but her husband left for work an hour and a half ago to beat the traffic. There's also her long commute and big heating and air conditioning bills. 
These are trade-offs that millions of Americans have been making for decades to live the American dream. But it comes with heavy costs for families and the global climate. We're upstairs in the Carvalho's nursery. Michelle is getting her 16-month-old son ready for daycare. His name is Galileo, after his father. There you go. Now you look happier. It's kind of cold, huh? The daycare is 10 minutes away. Michelle drops her son off, and then her real commute begins. Depending on traffic, it can take anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to drive to Emory University, where she works as a cancer prevention researcher. But first, we stop at a gas station. Gas is 3.05 today, so it's actually on the high side. The tank in her Nissan Altima holds 20 gallons, and she fills up once every five days or so. So does her husband. When the Carvalhos lived in the city, they had one car. But when they moved to the suburbs, they needed two. Both get a lot of use. The amount of gasoline they burn is the biggest reason the family's greenhouse gas emissions have more than doubled since they moved. Back on the highway, traffic slows a few times, but doesn't stop. It's a good day. Here we are pulling into the parking deck. The 24-mile commute took an hour. That's typical here. The average Atlanta resident with a job drives 66 miles every day. In fact, people here drive so much that if you add up every commute and every trip to a store or soccer practice on just one day, you get a number that's larger than the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Catherine Ross, a professor of transportation and growth at Georgia Tech, says commutes are so long here because as the area grew, there were no natural barriers to limit sprawl. We just took advantage of that and decided, well, I'll just go a little further out for a lot more house for a bit cheaper price uh, without really worrying about what it meant in terms of getting to and from your job, moving your children around, uh, visiting your family and friends, making those everyday stops that we all have to make. Ross says the toll all this takes on the environment is not sustainable. So we grew because we could, and now we have to change because we have to. When I meet Michelle Carvalho after work, she has a couple errands planned. She's leaving on the early side, just before 5 p.m. By the time she gets home, it'll be 7.30. Ironically, only six minutes after leaving her garage, we pass by where she used to live. Just down the road is where she did most of her shopping. I miss the proximity, but not the place that I lived. The Carvalhos didn't even look for houses near the university because a new house here, as big as theirs, could be triple the price. And Michelle says buying a house far from her job didn't seem like a problem. I just was doing what my parents did, and it wasn't such an odd idea to have a long commute somewhere. But scientists say with so many people making the same choices, the planet is paying big costs, like shrinking Arctic ice and more intense hurricanes, wildfires, and droughts. During the slow slog towards the suburbs, Michelle admits she doesn't really like her commute. The mornings are fine, the afternoons are just a little bit more frustrating just because it is much slower. We're going 16 miles an hour right now. That's right, 16 miles per hour. The speed limit here is 65. We finally reach her first stop, Target. It took us 40 minutes to go 15 miles. Inside, she goes from one side of the big store to the other, getting things on her list coffee, goldfish crackers, socks for herself and the baby. Then she's off to the mall. I'm going to guess that it's going to take 25 minutes, depending on traffic. In fact, it takes 35 minutes. 
At the mall, she buys what she needs and then heads to the food court. Here's another trade-off. Her long commute eats up her cooking time, so she often picks up dinner on the way home. Tonight, it's Little Tokyo. We are at my neighborhood, 40.5 miles. Two and a half hours after leaving work, the end is in sight. They're both waiting at the door and... Hello! Come in. <laughs> Wanna hug? The family sits down to eat around the kitchen table. Although moving to a suburban subdivision was second nature for Michelle, it's been hard for Galileo, who grew up in a high-rise apartment in Brazil. He complains about the chores and the yard work and all the stuff he has to buy to maintain the house. And he's shocked by the high energy costs. Their January natural gas bill was almost $300, triple what they paid to heat their last apartment. Their summer electric bills are also three times as high. But Galileo says he can't figure out how to cut their energy costs or reduce their driving. There's no way that we can use public transportation living in this area. I mean, I wake up at 4.15 already. So while the Carvalhos feel the blow their lifestyle delivers to their budget, they're not aware of its impact on global climate change. I never really thought about it because we get so caught up with the day-to-day -day activities that we do what we need to do to get through that day. Still, when Michelle weighs all her priorities, she's happy with the decision to move to their big, beautiful house. While somewhere in my priority list, being environmentally conscious is on there, but it's not going to be as high as what can I afford, what does my family need. Her husband, Galileo, just got a great new job. It pays more, but instead of commuting 40 miles a day, now he'll be driving 70. Elizabeth Shogren, NPR News. It's the Onion Radio News. Alabama environmentalists lobby for a solar-powered electric chair. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Alabama Environmental Defense League is nearing the end of a three-month campaign to install solar-powered electric chairs in each and every of the state's 4,200 prisons. Garrett Durning of Birmingham has worked tirelessly with many concerned citizens to bring down the environmental cost of capital punishment in the Yellowhammer State. Alabama wastes more than 500,000 watts of electricity on every criminal it executes. Solar power is by far a more energy-efficient way to execute the condemned. Durning added that wrist and ankle restraints should be made of organically grown hemp rather than leather. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Shed a little light, oh, shed a little light. 
we've been looking at the way American lifestyles affect climate change. For example, your commute may affect the climate. And today, from Atlanta, we will meet a family that shortened its commute. It's the second of two stories on how the choices we make about where we live have a big effect on the planet. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Shogren. It's still dark when the Taylors start their day in their swanky, compact loft apartment. Baby, are you ready? Malika Taylor and her 11-year-old daughter, Maya, ride the elevator and walk a few blocks to the school bus stop. Maya's backpack has wheels, and she rolls it behind her. The Taylors used to live the typical suburban life, the kind that helps make America the world's top contributor to climate change. But three years ago, they moved to Atlantic Station. It's a new community in midtown Atlanta, designed to put jobs, homes, and shopping all in one place. Their lifestyle changed dramatically. 720. Here she is. Malika Taylor walks briskly towards the apartment complex where she works as a property manager. She says she moved to the city because she was fed up with all the hours she spent in her car. And there's some weekends where I don't even use my car. My daughter likes to go to the movie, so maybe we'll go to a movie or... Um, and all of her friends, you know, we're the house that everybody wants to come to, so... <laughs> her friends come and we'll just kind of hang out and walk around. That's the whole point of developments like this. Walkable communities are springing up around the country. Proponents say they help cut pollution from cars, including carbon dioxide, which contributes to climate change. Less than 10 minutes later, Malika Taylor arrives at work. She hasn't burned any gasoline or spewed carbon dioxide into the air. Not half a minute, it's raining and really cold to drive. <laughs> but the drive is less than a mile and doesn't have much impact on global warming. That's unusual in Atlanta. The federal government estimates Atlanta residents, on average, travel 32 miles each day in cars. But the people who live and work in Atlantic Station drive about a third that much. We don't often think of a development as a way to solve environmental problems, but this is really a unique example of kind of growing your way into better environmental quality in some ways. Jeff Anderson helped steer the project for the Environmental Protection Agency. Now he's president and CEO of a group called Smart Growth America that advocates for environmentally friendly development. At first, the EPA supported Atlantic Station as a way to help Atlanta fight its unhealthy smog problem. Anderson says now the agency sees the community as a model of how America can fight climate change. The two biggest things that we do from a carbon perspective are we heat our houses or cool them um, or we drive. And when you combine that, that's going to add up to a big chunk of your personal carbon footprint. Reducing her carbon footprint wasn't on Malika Taylor's mind when she moved here. She just wanted her life back. But living here has cut her and Maya's impact on global warming to about half the national average for a family of two. See you guys tomorrow. Bye. Bye. Have a nice day. At 3.20, Malika's workday is over. Today she went home for lunch, as she often does. My dog likes it when he gets a <laughs> Since it had started raining, she picked up her car. When she lived in the suburbs, Taylor filled up her gas tank three or four times every two weeks. Not anymore. We get paid bi-weekly. I can fill up on payday and make it to payday without filling up again, which is nice. Her other energy bills shrank, too. When we had a house, you know, easily in the winter, the gas bill was almost $200. 
The Taylors use electricity to heat and cool their apartment. That bill tops out at around $80. That's about 20% less than the average bill for an Atlanta household. Apartments often have lower energy costs because of shared walls and smaller spaces. If lots of Americans lived like the Taylors, the nation's greenhouse gas pollution could drop by hundreds of millions of tons. It took just a couple minutes to drive to Maya's bus stop. As we wait in the car, Malika says what she really values is extra time with her daughter. When they lived in the suburbs, it took Malika more than an hour to get to Maya's after-school care. I was one of the last parents getting there, and just the guilt, and uh, I was just really unhappy with the way the evenings were. I felt all I did like was work, cook dinner, go to bed, work, cook dinner, go to bed. <laughs> and commute. Yeah, and commute, yeah. Of course the move didn't come without trade-offs. I can't afford to buy a house in the city. It took me uh, four garage sales to get rid of enough stuff to fit into my apartment. <laughs> um, you know, I thought I purged and it still wasn't enough and I had to purge again, but here's the bus. How was school today, babe? Good. It takes no time and hardly any gas or greenhouse gas emissions to drive home. Sometimes Taylor has to go back to work, but since she has no commute and starts so early, on days like today, she's done. Maya settles in to do homework and her mom decides to go to the grocery store. Taking shelter under an umbrella, Malika walks all of two minutes to get there. On the way, she points out the places where she and Maya happily fill up their free time. The movie theater is on that back street. It's right down there, so very close. And then they have a little Central Park area in the middle where they throw uh, all kind of different events. During Christmas, they had a, you know, a big tree and they would make it snow. They also walk to stores like Target and Ikea, as well as the supermarket. I forgot to take something out to cook tonight, so... What are you going to make for dinner? Um, fajitas. Her errand takes less than 15 minutes door to door. Yeah, that's hands down probably one of the biggest perks about <laughs> living here. The convenience, convenience, convenience. It's only 4.20. Maya's already made a big dent in her homework and Malika has a few hours to kill. Maybe I'll work out, you know, maybe we'll play a game. It's, it makes a huge difference just in the quality of our, our life. While most Atlantans are still at work or stuck on congested highways, the Taylors have a whole evening in front of them. Elizabeth Shogren, NPR News.
podcast has been described as one of the Western world's most influential energy thinkers. He's also a leading opponent of nuclear power. Amory Lovins is co-founder, chair, and chief scientist of Rocky Mountain Institute in Colorado. He's consultant physicist, MacArthur Fellow, and recipient of numerous awards, including the Right Livelihood Award. Lovins advised the energy and other industries in countries around the world, including here in the U.S. He invented the hybrid hypercar in 91 and has written 29 books, including Soft Energy Paths, Natural Capitalism, Small is Profitable, and Winning the Oil Endgame. Amory Lovins joins us here in our Firehouse studio. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you. It's good to have you with us. Well, talk about nuclear power. Why do you feel it's not an option, given the oil crisis? Well, first of all, electricity and oil have essentially nothing to do with each other. And anybody who thinks the contrary is really ignorant about energy. Less than 2% of our electricity is made from oil. Less than 2% of our oil makes electricity. Uh, those numbers are falling, and essentially all the oil involved is actually the heavy, gooey bottom of the barrel you can't even make mobility fuels out of anyway. Uh, what nuclear would do is displace coal, our most abundant domestic fuel, and this sounds good for climate, but actually expanding nuclear makes climate change worse for a very simple reason. Nuclear is incredibly expensive. The costs have just stood up on end lately. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that they're about two to four times the cost that the industry was talking about just a year ago. Uh, and the result of that is that if you buy more nuclear plants, you're going to get about two to ten times less climate solution per dollar, and you'll get it about 20 to 40 times slower than if you buy instead the cheaper, faster stuff that is walloping nuclear and coal and gas, all kinds of central plants in the marketplace. And those competitors are efficient use of electricity and what's called micropower, which is both uh, renewables, except big hydro, and making electricity and heat together in factories and buildings, which takes about half of the money, fuel, and carbon of making them separately as we normally do. So. <clears throat> Uh, nuclear cannot actually deliver the climate or the security benefits claimed for it. It's unrelated to oil, and it's grossly uneconomic, which means the nuclear revival that we often hear about is not actually happening. Uh, it's a, a very carefully fabricated illusion, uh, and the reason it isn't happening is there are no buyers. That is, Wall Street is not putting a penny of private capital into the industry. Uh, despite 100-plus percent subsidies. Why? It's uneconomic. It costs, for example, about three times as much as wind power, which is booming. Uh, let me give you some numbers about what's, what's happening in the marketplace, because that, that's reality as far as I'm concerned. I really take markets seriously. 2006, the last full year of data we have, nuclear worldwide added a little bit of capacity more than all of it from uprating old plants, because the new ones they built were smaller than the retirements of old plants. So they added 1.4 billion watts. Sounds like a lot. Well, it's, it's about one big plant's worth worldwide. That was less than photovoltaics, solar cells added in capacity. It was a tenth what wind power added. It was a thirtieth to a fortieth what micropower added. What's micropower? Again, it's renewables other than big hydro, plus co-generating electricity and heat together, usually in industry. In 2006, micropower for the first time produced more electricity worldwide than nuclear did. A sixth of the world's electricity is now micropower. A third of the new electricity 
in a dozen industrial countries, micropower makes anywhere from a sixth to over half of all the electricity. This is not a fringe activity anymore. Um, China, which has the world's most ambitious nuclear program by the end of 2006, had seven times that much capacity in distributed renewables, and they were growing it seven times faster. Take a look at 2007, uh, in which the U.S. or Spain or China added more wind capacity than the world added nuclear capacity. The U.S. added more wind capacity last year than we've added coal capacity in the past five years put together. And renewables, other than big hydro, got last year $71 billion of private capital. Nuclear, as usual, got zero. It is only bought by central planners with a draw on the public purse. What does this tell you? I mean, what, what part of the story does anybody who take market seriously not get? And yet, uh, well, the media clearly in this country doesn't get it, because it is raised over and over again by the candidates. I mean, it seems that uh, Senator McCain has a favorite number, 100 years in Iraq, also hoping for 100 more new nuclear power plants. He had said something about he doesn't want to lose the knowledge of building, since the last one was built more than 30 years ago. The people are dying who would build it, so we've got to rush and build them now. Well, it, you could say that's already been lost, in the sense that most of a new nuclear plant built now in the U.S., if there were any, uh, would have to be imported, which, by the way, means we buy it in weak U.S. dollars, which is part of the incredible cost escalation we've seen. Uh, Moody's latest number is $7,500 a kilowatt. Uh, that's, a, again, as the journal said, about two to four times the numbers that were being bandied about just last year by promoters. And uh, Barack Obama, while he hasn't laid out a plan for building, he's a big uh, campaign contributor, Exelon, and has supported the expansion of nuclear power. And, of course, we heard what President Bush has to say. Actually, I thought what Senator Obama said was explore, which is different. And, and you will find major environmental groups saying something like explore or consider, but they will also say very carefully it has to be competitive, it has to be cost-effective, and clearly that doesn't even pass the giggle test. Um, a new nuclear plant, according to Moody's, would send out electricity for about 15 cents a kilowatt hour, which is half again as much as the average residential rate, um, and that doesn't even count for delivering it to your house. And I think if, if nuclear plants were built, which I don't think is likely, you would see incredible rate shock and a big political reaction. Um, environmentalists like Stuart Brand and uh, James Lovelock uh, are pushing nuclear power. Uh, there are actually four individuals involved in the world who are prominent environmentalists who have that view, and you've named two of them. Who are the other two? Uh, Patrick Moore uh, was active in founding Greenpeace back in the 70s, and now works uh, for industry. Um, and uh, uh, Peter Schwartz, who used to be on my board, uh, who used to run group planning for World Dutch Shell, uh, is of the same view. But there, I can't think of any others. There are no actual environmental groups who favor nuclear power. Uh, what is your answer to them, and why have they arrived? These are your old colleagues. Yeah, well, uh, you know, t t uh, a couple of them are old friends. Well, I think they haven't done their homework. And uh, I keep asking for their analysis and not getting it, because I don't think they have one. But uh, they, they somehow form the view that because nuclear doesn't emit carbon, it must be a good thing. Well, that's not good enough. 
uh, you need a source that doesn't emit carbon. Uh, nuclear emits a little bit in the fuel cycle and, and in building plants and so on, but anyone that doesn't emit carbon and is faster and cheaper than other ways to do the same thing. You see, renewables don't emit carbon, efficiency doesn't emit carbon, cogeneration based on recovered waste heat you were throwing away anyhow doesn't emit carbon because you already paid for the carbon in making the, in the, making the useful part of the heat in industry. And these sources are a great deal cheaper and faster than nuclear. So if climate's a problem, we need to invest judiciously, not indiscriminately, to get the most solution per dollar, the most solution per year. Otherwise, we're making things worse. We're talking to Amory Lovins. He is co-founder, chair, and chief scientist at Rocky Mountain Institute, which is based in Aspen in um, Colorado. Old snowmass. <laughs> old snowmass. <laughs> um, Nuclear power is one of the issues that is being posed as an alternative to reliance on foreign fuel. And this is also an issue we addressed yesterday with Naomi Klein on Democracy Now!, the issue of uh, expanding oil drilling offshore and onshore. You've been looking at this. Well, we're, we seem to be wanting to drill in all the wrong places. Uh, for example, over 50 times as much oil as might be under the Arctic refuge at very high prices can be saved at very low prices by using the oil efficiently, uh, <clears throat> also uh, many times faster. So uh, w my wildcatters have been drilling lately in the Detroit formation. Uh, that is, making efficient cars uh, is equivalent to finding an all-American Saudi Arabia under Detroit, uh, about eight and a half million barrels a day. Uh, inexhaustible, climate-safe, and uh, costing about 12 bucks a barrel. Now, <clears throat> altogether, there's about 14 million barrels a day of oil savings, averaging 12 bucks a barrel cost. And uh, <clears throat> we know exactly where the oil is. There's no doubt that it's there. It's under Detroit, Seattle, and so on. That's out of you know, 20 or so million barrels a day we're using. So. If you're an oil company and you go to the ends of the earth and drill for very expensive oil that might not even be there, wouldn't it be embarrassing if somebody else, meanwhile, found all that cheap oil under Detroit? And shouldn't we drill the most prospective place first? I've tried this uh, formulation lately on the American Association of Petroleum Geologists and the American Petroleum Institute, and they found it pretty persuasive. Uh, you know, I've worked for major oil companies for about 35 years, and <clears throat> they understand how expensive it is to drill for oil. Take the Arctic Refuge as an example. Uh, you might think that at today's oil prices, it would be clearly a great deal <clears throat> to go drill there. Well, it wasn't before when oil was in the 20-odd dollar a barrel range instead of 140. And that's why the oil companies weren't interested. Guess what? They're still not interested. Why not? Well, because their costs of drilling have gone up more than the oil price went up. If you talk to people who run exploration in major oil companies, they're still not excited about the Arctic Refuge because practically any other place in the world they could drill would be cheaper and less risky uh, than that extraordinarily remote and hostile environment. So why is Bush pushing? Who knows? But it, it doesn't make any economic sense. There's no business case for it. And the real showstopper, interestingly, is national security, which you would think that he and Senator McCain and so on would be concerned about. 
Uh, Jim Woolsey, a not hostile to oil per se Oklahoman, former CIA director, has actually testified against Arctic refuge drilling on national security grounds. And there's a very simple reason. There's only one way to get the oil south. It's through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which is the most vulnerable part of our energy infrastructure, the biggest terrorist target in our energy infrastructure. It's what he calls Uncle Sam's kick-me sign. So think about it. You've got an 800-mile pipeline, mostly above ground, mostly accessible by road or by float plane. And if the flow through it is interrupted in the winter for about a week, 900, uh, well, 9, 9 million barrels of hot oil congeals into the world's largest chapstick, a big candle, and then you can't pump it anymore. Could this happen? Well, actually, yes, if, if certain uh, points on the pipeline, pumping stations and so on were attacked or stuff at, at either end. And uh, <clears throat> has that happened? Well, let's see. It's been sabotaged, uh, almost blew itself up uh, on occasion through mismanagement. It's been incompetently bombed twice. It's been shot at 50 times. A drunk shut it down with a, one hole from a rifle bullet. And the scariest thing to me is um, around Y2K, at the turn of the century, a disgruntled engineer was caught by accident about to blow up three critical points with 14 bombs he'd built and tested. We're going to have to leave it there, but we, one answer, have we solved the nuclear waste problem even? No, but I'd, I just come off the wagon on the economics, and then we don't need to argue about whether it's safe. And the world is made of energy, and the Exxon paleontologists call for increased U.S. fossil production. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. A team of Exxon scientists released a report today calling for an immediate and substantial increase in U.S. fossils. At the current rate at which we are producing new fossils in this country, we will not have enough to meet our fossil fuel needs for another 12 to 1,500 million years. Dr. Jameson Lamb, Exxon urged Congress to establish incentives for the world's plants and animals to decay, sink deep into the Earth's crust, and fossil no later than July. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. comfort in history. All of 
I do, I do. Take comfort in history? I don't know. There's nothing in history not to take comfort I from. Well, that's a, I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe I pick and choose. You know, I look at a, at a Churchill or at a Mandela or, you know, I'm talking about the people who had real long walks through the wilderness in their own countries before they were finally able to uh, find their moment and make a contribution that's a, really a world historic contribution. I look at our movements in that way. The young people that I see taking on this climate challenge. I mean, this, you know, this is their civil rights movement. This is their Vietnam. I mean, they're getting a kind of political ex uh, initiation that uh, I think is, is, is really rare. It's probably since your generation. And, um, and then you also see the hip hop uh, generation, the more political edge of that, you know, engaging on questions of schools, not jails, et cetera. So I think there's a lot out there. I think the challenges that we face are, are so serious that no serious person can imagine that markets by themselves are going to fix them, which means we're going to have to rely on more community collectivist responses and or more government partnership and support just to deal with the ecological you know, crisis, the economic crisis, this military misadventure. So I think that good common sense will begin to reassert itself. Thanks for listening, everybody. I have huge, huge news for you. I hope you're sitting. Uh, if you're driving, I hope uh, you're not being distracted too much. I don't want any accidents to be caused. Uh, we've launched a new project. The Best of the Left podcast has now officially um, given birth to the Best of the Left blog. And now I know what you're thinking, that we've had a blog for years, um, but up until just a couple of days ago, the only purpose of the Best of the Left blog was to provide the show notes for each episode that we have. Now we have officially launched uh, what what really will be the podcast in blog form. And, and what I mean by that is that the podcast, as you know, is dedicated to finding the best of the left in radio and sometimes video and and creating shows out of it, themed shows, and uh, and so the blog will be everything else. Basically, what we want to do is create a blog that is of very high quality for the very same reason that the podcast is of very high quality, that we don't actually have much to do with it. The point is that we steal from other people who know what they're doing and funnel it through a, you know, a system like we have uh, at the best of the left to you. And so basically all we're doing is, uh, is compiling and then putting out the information uh, for people to easily and quickly digest it. So similar to the idea of the podcast, the blog will just be a, a series of um, basically very short commentaries 
and and links to other things that we find, you know, really interesting articles, pictures, videos, anything we can find online that we consider the best of the left, we'll post on the blog, you subscribe to the blog, and you get a great digest of everything that we find that's going on in the world, basically. So, you know, just to give a quick example, if you go there now, the first couple of posts, one's very, very short, it's just, uh, you know, one sentence and a picture talking about how uh, Barack Obama is a horrible elit elitist who can't uh, connect with the common people and uh, and how he compares to John McCain. It's a, it's a great graphic. You really have to go to the blog to check it out. And then right before that, the very first post I did on the blog was a really interesting article written by a hardcore conservative commentator talking about how Sarah Palin isn't qualified to be on the ticket with John McCain. It's a great read. I, I wrote a post up there, gave some uh, quotes from her article, and then linked to the original article. And it's just like that. It's that simple. And that's the type of thing that you can expect from me and, and from anyone else uh, posting on the blog. That's the sort of thing you'll be getting. So I, I highly, highly encourage all of you to go subscribe to the homepage of the podcast right now, uh, basically the the show notes and these new special blog posts will be in the exact same feed. So if you just go to the homepage, you can see on the right uh, sidebar of, of the website that there's a new subscribe to the blog button. It's very simple. Um, subscribe to the blog and you'll get all of these uh, new updates as they come. In that same vein, we're looking for bloggers. Uh, I will be blogging. I, I have hopes that, uh, that people who are already involved with the show, although I won't speak for them at the moment, uh, I'm hoping that uh, people will be interested in blogging. But uh, for anyone out there who's interested in blogging, we are taking applications. Basically, the way it works, uh, drop me a line at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. My contact information is available on the website. Send me a note. Say you're interested in helping out. You know, if you're the type of person who uh, reads a lot of politics online, uh, maybe watches a lot of uh, interesting political YouTube clips, anything like that. Uh, if you're interested in just having a place to, when you find something great, you want to write a blog about it that's, you know, two sentences and, and the article that uh, you read or the video you saw, anything like that, uh, we're looking for your help. And, and basically we hope that we can create a, a great little staff of writers who can keep this blog going strong. More big news, not about the show this time, but as I'm sure uh, you all know, the vice presidential debates are coming up on October 2nd. Uh, this show is being posted October 1st on Wednesday. If you hear the sound of my voice uh, before the big event tomorrow, just know that uh, we're so excited about this. I mean, this has the potential to be uh, the the most political fun we've had in longer than, than I can remember. Um, in any event, it'll be a historical night. It, even, even if it doesn't go the way we expect, uh, it'll be fascinating to see. So I really, really highly encourage that everyone tune in to, to watch that live. And of course, as we have done in the past and will continue to do in the future, we will be hosting a debate watching party on the website, bestofleftpodcast.com. Look for the big 
uh, chat room button on the sidebar and that'll take you right to the live video feed where you can watch the debate right on your screen right alongside our live chat room uh, where you can chat with uh, producers of the show as well as, uh, as as well as other listeners. So all of that starts October 2nd, 9 p.m. Eastern when the debates go live on TV. And finally, I just wanted to uh, say that the, uh, the nominations for the podcast awards are now closed. Thanks to everyone who nominated the show. We'll find out in a few days if we made the cut. Uh, thanks uh, again to all the people who have been filling out our listener survey. We've been getting some great responses. I really encourage you guys to keep going and keep checking out the listener survey uh, to fill that out. It, it really helps us understand uh, what you like and don't like about the show and uh, and helps us improve accordingly. So that's going to be it for me today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thought lines now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Your shadow bases the floor Just a fond farewell to a friend